nine. But by the time I was done with the 8.30 service and got to the 10.30 service, it's been like this. And I thought, this happens free, you know, periodically, and it gets better. But as the day is going along, my wife said, you're squeaking more and more. So maybe it's an answer to prayer that I'm just going to have a form of laryngitis that I've never had before. I hope not, but my wife has maybe different opinion about that. <clears throat> we're in Luke chapter 2. What we're doing is we're taking a series that's called The Seven Scenes of Christmas with the idea that we do some meditating, some thinking. Excuse me. I should just purposely go down into a lower voice. Uh, otherwise, I'll be squeaking. Uh, but we're talking about that idea of meditation. There's a story that comes out, and it's true from history, about a father and a son that lived in that regions in the Orient. <clears throat> and one day they were getting ready to do their every quarter or every half a year trip to the major city nearby where they were going to be able to go and sell some of their farm goods. So what they did is they loaded up the, the um, wagon and they started off as they were pulling it and they were uh, getting themselves towards that area. Uh, go ahead, and it was going to be a two, three day trip. Well, the father and the son, they've been farming together for a period of time, and they got along famously, except for the son always wanted to get things done quickly, and the dad was of the, of the idea, why do today what you can put off till tomorrow? And so they're on their way, and dad is true to form. Dad doesn't want to hurry. Dad wants to take in the nature of the trip as they're traveling through the wooded areas and the, the different beautiful flowers and the different wooded area. And so by the time of the first night, the son's getting really irritated with dad. Like, we've got to get to the city, get the things sold, get back home. I have a family. I want to get back. And, you know, you have responsibilities. Oh, no, we need to take our time. If we take our time and enjoy, we, we need to enjoy what's around us and all that's creation. The next day. They're traveling along. The son's trying to get dad to move faster and faster. And dad's not moving along. In fact, dad says, we're coming up to my brother's house. If they're home, let's spend the night. No, 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 no. We have plenty of time today to make even more miles. No, I want to see family. You should stop and enjoy family. Son relents. They spend that time. Son hardly sleeps. He's irritated all night. You know, let's get moving. Let's get moving. And so they start off and they they just, they, they have come to a crossroads and they can go this way or this way. This way is going to take longer, but it's prettier. This way is shorter and... It's where the son wants to go. But which way do you think the dad wants to go? Okay, he wants to go, and the dad wins out. The son is more irritated. Son's uh, dad's talking about, aren't these beautiful woods? Aren't these beautiful flowers? Yeah, they stink. You know, son's attitude. He's all frustrated. So they stop in the woods in the evening, and they camp out, and early in the morning, it's not going to be that much farther, they get to the city. Early in the morning, all of a sudden, they wake up. And there's this loud thundering that's nearby. And it looks like lightning. And they're ready to get going. But the son, the, the dad says, oh, look, at, there's somebody by the roadside. We need to help them out. So they're delayed even further. And when they finally get to the crest of the hill and look down on the city, they are just absolutely aghast. They stand there and they look. And the son pauses and he says, I guess taking in and taking time and looking at everything else was worth our while. There they stand on the hills looking down to Hiroshima, the day of its bombing. Now that's a really dramatic setting, but it is, there's a fact that sometimes it really does pay and helps us out slow down, take in, and meditate, take in what God has done. We're coming to a passage in Luke that is very, very, very familiar. You, most of you, can even quote it. 
A lot of you had memorized it. You've done Christmas plays. You've mentioned this passage. And so it's extremely familiar. But in one of our seven scenes where we're saying, let's slow down, let's look at it a little bit more in depth. Let's see what we find this evening as we do a little bit of slowing down. And maybe we'll find something that'll be a benefit and save us from all kinds of difficulties in the future. We read in in Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. We'll continue with that story next Sunday morning, but let's just stop and take in those few verses. Very familiar, but I want you to understand that this is one of the most frequently attacked, questioned passages of the New Testament. And as you're going to take time this Christmas season to read the story, you're probably going to run into TV programs. You're probably going to see articles. If you go on the website and do any research, you're surely going to run into some of the criticisms, some of the attacks, and some of those comments and studies that are put out there to say that this passage is filled with errors, filled with all kinds of wrong information, and we can't look at this passage as reliable. Some of those who even put out a Bible that comment about all the fallacies and all the different different mistakes in it, they will look at this text and they will say, it is absolutely legendary, mythological, it's made up. You and I need to stop and say, you know what, this is real history. One of the reasons I know it's real history is back up to chapter 1. Look at chapter 1 in the very first few verses. It says, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most assuredly believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all the things from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know with a certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. <clears throat> the author, Luke, a doctor, a scholar by trade, he is extremely careful in what he's writing. He tells us at this very beginning that what he does is he's done research. This isn't some type of made-up, exaggerated story. And in you look in Luke chapter 2, he's giving names, dates, events. He's giving historical landmarks by which you can say, okay, this is what happened when it happened. And yet, the critics are going to say, no, it's filled with inaccuracies. Some of the landmarks that we saw and read about in Luke chapter 2, they're going to make these comments. And they're going to, you're going to see this. These are some of the major criticisms of the text. That there were no major censuses taken in, Aga, in Augustine's, Caesar Augustus, in his period of time, in Augustus's time. There was no, no record of a major census being done at the time that it's suggested. There's going to be saying this, the people and events, they don't line up. Some of the characters, they're from different points of history and they don't run you know, consecutively. We're going to look at that and make sure you understand that that's not the case. They're going to make this comment. Joseph and Mary, they wouldn't have had to travel. Roman census, when they took them, they said you go to the place where you are living and where you have residence and there you take care of your taxes. So they had no reason to go to Bethlehem. We'll explain that. No way anyone would travel when they're nine months pregnant. 
Some of you would say, I understand that. Okay, and that could be a difficulty. We'll explain why that's the case. Why is the, why the passage? And some you make the, a big deal to say, see the passage is filled with errors. Why would you go up to Bethlehem from Nazareth? Bethlehem is south of Nazareth. Why would they talk about going up? It, it's absolutely ridiculous. Why would a pregnant woman end up in a barn? And so there's all these comments that you and I say, okay, let's let's give some information here. Not just because we want information, but because we want to be able to explain that these passages are absolutely accurate. How do we answer some of those comments that are going to be made on the History Channel by people that are going to comment on this text, who are going to other preachers, other sermons that your relatives will say, hey, I heard this person and they gave us the real story about you know, what really happened and how you know, this, what's recorded here mm, may not be true. Here's one of the things. There, Caesar Augustus was emperor from this time to this time. Well, well you, you can understand that. And during his reign, they say that he didn't have a census. There's no historical record of a census that was taking place about the year that Christ was born. Okay, that is true. We know that that is true, that there is no historical record of an actual census that was declared that's written about right around 5 or 6 BC. We know that. But what we also know from multiple different historical texts, we know that he did have a general census done periodically. One of them was in 28 uh, uh, BC. He had some done in the western part of the empire, Gaul on a couple occasions, in Cyrene. We know that there was every 14 years a census taking place during the Roman occupation down in Egypt. So to say that there was no census just because it's not mentioned, it didn't occur, that's stepping out on a limb. It is very likely that they did have general census. We know they did have some general census. So why is, it, why is it a problem to say there could have been one that's not specifically recorded at that one time? And so they do these census. They would do them regionally. They would do them throughout the empire. There's no problem with understanding this did happen. And when they did the census, just for your information's sake, here it's saying for taxes, there was a second reason why the Romans would do it. The Romans would do it with uh, the idea of being able to get their armies enlistment. What they would do is they would have a census of different regions, get the number of young men, and then those regions had to provide either the funds to support that many young men who would be uh, taken into battle, or they would have to provide some of those young men as part of the army. And you know that Rome had 50,000 miles of roads. They had the Pax Romana. There was, there was things that had to be taken care of by the taxes. So it's no surprise. And as the rain would go on and he needs more money to keep this going, why wouldn't he do a periodic census? I mean, in our land, how often do we do census? Every 10 years, just to make sure we're doing you know, the government and the taxes and the monies. So to say in an empire that they, that they didn't happen because we don't know of that one specific census that took place at 5 or 6, that's a stretch in history. Okay? We have no reason to doubt that it happened and could happen. Now, some say the dates don't line up. This is very important for you who need to understand that Bible dating, that we, we have these facts. Augustus was emperor from 44 to 14 AD. Then this passage mentions another person. Who, does, who else does it mention? Another official. Okay, Cyrenius, who is what? He's a governor of where? 
Syria, okay. His, um, it, it, there's also Herod the Great, by the way, that we know about. Herod is going to play into this in Matthew. You remember how Herod plays in because he is going to try to do what with Christ? He's going to try to kill him. And so Herod died in 4 BC. That means that Jesus had to be born, okay, before that time, up to how, what, what would be a reasonable time to put in here? Two years, up to two years before. So Jesus could be born anywhere from 6 to 5 BC. Some as a stretch would be 7. Now you had mentioned that there's Cyrenius, the governor of Syria. Here's your problem. Historical records have Cyrenius, governor of Syria, at 6 or 7 AD. Now they don't line up. And so those who are critical of this text, if they look at it, and if you and I were to look at it, just that fact, we would say there is a conflict. There is some type of contradiction. There's some type of a problem here. However, there is some other information that we could add that we found out archaeologically in other records. Other records give us this information. There's other records that tell us that there was a governor of Syria who served several, at two different times, and those times of his service were several years apart. And that other writing does not say who the governor is. That writing that's come from a city near Rome and is found in ancient writings indicates that this fella, this governor, ruled and reigned as governor from 9 to 5, 8, 9, it's, I should have that B.C., that's a mistake, 9 to 5 B.C., okay? And then that person ruled again sometime after that. It doesn't give his name. But if it is Cyrenius, then it would all line up. Okay, which makes no problem. But we don't have that fact. We don't know for sure if Cyrenius was the one that had, that was the one that was between 9 and 5 BC. And if it is the case, then there's no problem as well. There's another reason that we can say there's no problem as well. Look at the text. It says in your text, it goes on to make the comment that he was, this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. The word that's used for first is protos. It is translated at other times in the Bible with the word before. And so if that's the case, then it's saying this taxing was before Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And so there's no conflict. There's no, there's no contradiction. The Bible isn't suspect if we look and say, well, that's the way the word is translated at times. If this is the other governor, which would give us plausible historical and grammatical proof that there's no contradiction in the text. But if I want to say that the text is filled with errors, then I ignore some of these facts. You and I can look at some of the facts and say, okay, they did have general censuses taking place. They did have regional. There is, there is the strong possibility that Cyrenius did rule earlier from 9 to 5 BC as governor. And besides that, the text says before. Before, so then there would be no problem whatsoever. And you and I would look and say, okay, because we know Herod and his killing of the children, it would line up that all of these facts from Luke chapter 2 make sense if Jesus was born right around that 5 or 6 BC. And so there's no contradiction, there's no problem there. Some would say, wait a minute, the registration of the Roman taxes, that Mary and Joseph had to go to be registered for taxes, that the Romans typically said that they could be taxed and registered in their home area where they're living. That's a fact. That's true. And so then some would say, well, if that's the case, then why would they travel? This is all made up. This is an exaggerated story. Well, wait a minute. 
Wait a minute, here's historical fact as well. Historical fact is Rome let the different regions choose how they would incorporate the tax plan. It's like the United States government says we're supposed to hold an election for a president periodically. Does every state do it the same way for voting? Do all the states agree with how to do the voting? No, we know that that's not the case. Okay, so the Rome saying, yes, we want taxes, we want over here, you're going to provide so many people for enlistment or so many dollars over here, you're going to do so many people, so many enlistment. But how you get that to us, we don't care how you collect it, just get it to us. And so with that in mind, they're being registered and being taxed based upon how the Jews would operate. Well, the Jews operate with what in mind? All the time they want to know family genealogy, family records. Now, at this time, they still had records. They still knew who was all these different, all these different generations after generations. It is only in 70 AD when the city of Jerusalem is destroyed that those genealogical records are destroyed. And so to keep those records updated, when the Jews did taxings, when they did registration, they would want the families to go back to their home regions, their ancestral regions, the headquarters, and get everything updated. We know that that's true historically. So the reason that Mary and Joseph had to travel from Nazareth was because they're of the family of David, and David's home family headquarters is what town? Bethlehem. And so what the Jews conducting it, they're saying, okay, you need to go back and report to Bethlehem and update all your genealogical records there. Fully understandable, makes sense. We know that this is the way it happened historically. Besides, if they were involved with family ancestral holdings of any sort, they would have to pay their taxes back there. And you know that typically the Jewish family maintained their family historical holdings in the regions which were given to them by their tribal leaders all the way back in the Old Testament. And so we have no problem with that. Let's do this. Why would a pregnant woman... I almost said pregnant man. Okay. Why would a pregnant man... Okay. Why would a man take a pregnant wife on a trip so far? That, that's a legitimate question. Yes, no? Okay. I mean, you and I would say, why would we do it modern days, go real far? And travel is a whole lot more comfortable today. Yes, no? Okay. So when we put the facts in, here are the historical facts. Nazareth and Bethlehem, 90 miles. There is no mention of a donkey, by the way, in the biblical record. Okay, we sing about it, we talk about it, we picture it, but we don't know. It might make sense if they had one, that's great. Okay? But if they're traveling and if they're walking, somebody who is healthy, like most of you here, probably 20 miles a day. A person who has a, a, a disability, a person who could be you know, slowing down because being close to nine months pregnant might slow down some people. Yes, ladies, would that be reasonable to assume? Okay, that they're going maybe half that distance. That means that this trip is not an overnight trip. This is seven, eight, nine, ten days of traveling. That would be difficult. Okay, that would be difficult for any woman, man. But then you add that this woman is getting close to her due date. This is a challenge. This is difficult. And so we know that it would be rough on Mary. The natural concern would not only be Mary, but the baby as well. And so the question is, why would they have done it? And that's a legitimate, legitimate question. Why would they have done it? What would you give as an answer? We know they did. Why did they do it? 
Okay, let's, let's be very, very practical about it. The first reason that we would say is it's required. The officials required this of them. This was the emperor, the empire saying we've got a tax. And that decree could have been made two years earlier, some suggest, just by the simple fact that it took time to channel down and get this organized. So the decree that took place is saying, you know, you have to get taxed. And in their home area, they're saying, you've got to get back to Bethlehem. You have no choice. You're going back to Bethlehem. And by the way, who is the ruler of this region at this time? Herod the Great. Does he really care about a woman's condition? No, he's a nut. Okay, he's evil, he's cruel, and it would be very, very, very brutal. Remember, we talked about him, he's a despot. He's, he's not a, at all sympathetic to the Jewish people, he just wants power. And so what he would do would just demand this, and they would have to go. There is another reason why they could have gone on this trip. There's another reason why Joseph didn't say, hey, you, you know what, why don't you just stay home and I'll do it by myself. Okay? You know, I'll make sure that all of our friends and relatives take care of you while I'm gone. What do we say is the strong possibility of what happened to them? Okay? Okay, we talked about this morning. Okay? Um, oh, I, I, I forgot about this one. They're recently married. They're still in their honeymoon phase. Remember Bible days in the Old Testament, the honeymoon basically lasted how many months? Yeah, it lasted a year, okay, in the Old Testament. So they're in that first six months of their marriage. So, you know, a honeymoon couple don't want to be apart, okay, even if she has to do this. But who's going to take care of Mary? You think his family may want to? Or could, his, or could he be cautious that, you know what, if she stays here, she could be in more trouble? She'd be by herself. It's what we talked about this morning and we pointed out last week. There is a great amount of animosity that's relayed historically as well as in scripture that Mary and Joseph have ruined their reputation because family doesn't understand. And so that fact that, okay, I'm your provider, I'm your caregiver at this time because this news is so fresh. Maybe down the road the family will accept you. Maybe down the road the family will accept the grandchildren. Okay, but that might, they might have to have time, and we're within the first few months. Every, everything is still fresh. So, you know, they, 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 it makes sense that she would say, I'm going with you. And they knew this is Messiah. Knowing that this is Messiah, what do they know about this person according to the Old Testament? He's got to be born where? In Bethlehem. So they know the prophecies to say, well, you know, we have to go to our hometown yeah, we have to go to our hometown. God is, God is already moving in this. We both had the angel come to us. God is in charge. And whatever happens, happens. Because the Bible says, predicts that it's going to take place in Bethlehem. So we're headed that way because of the taxes. So apparently God is moving. God is opening up doors that we get to Bethlehem. And we go down there. So it makes perfect sense that they would go to Bethlehem. Because these two are, what do they have that we said that this morning? We took great amount of time explaining. Joseph is a just man. In other words, he is a what? He's a believer. He's a believer. He believes the prophecy. She, was, she, she believed. They were willing to travel. As difficult as it is, this was a want to go. And this is like, okay, there's a pull. You know, from inside to do it, there's a push from outside, the social pressures to do it, as well as the taxation. But to say, why would they do it? Okay, it's not the most convenient, it's not what people would normally do. But at that moment, for that couple, it makes perfect sense.
that they would make this trip. Now, this is so minor, and yet there are books that have, that have been written about this. They make a mistake in the text. It, they went up to Bethlehem. How do you answer something like this? Okay, When they're traveling, you look at the map, Nazareth is north, Bethlehem is down south, it's in the red. Typically, most everybody would say, we're going down. Okay, we're going down to D.C., we're going down to Florida, we're going, you know, we're going up to Anchorage, okay, because it's north of us. That's, and they talk that way normally. How do you answer this one? Okay, several of you have made several different answers that are, that are it. So somebody, one at a time. Difference of elevation. Somebody else. There's another, that, that, that is the answer. There's, a, there's another one as well. Okay, let, let's do this. Okay, just if you, if you did a topographical map, you are going up to Bethlehem. Makes perfect sense. As well, typically in Jewish writing, when they went to Jerusalem, Bethlehem's just a couple of few miles from there. When they went to Jerusalem, they always wrote, we're going up. And so in their culture, going up is not so far fresh, fresh if you're in that region around Jerusalem. And as, as well, it's a higher elevation. So why people make such an issue and discredit the entire Bible because of a phrase, they went up, I don't understand. But if you're intent on destroying the word of God, you ignore the facts and just go with your feelings. And so that's what's happening in this text. Which brings us back to this whole, this whole comment. That this passage is real. It is historically accurate. It is an amazing text that reveals what really happened. But not only that, it reveals some biblical truth. Some truth that for us here in 2020 has some really, uh, some really reassuring, confidence-building type thoughts. Here's the four truths that I think this text reveals. You might have a whole lot of others, and yours might be far more profound than what I have. And I would be more than happy to get your notes and get your material. But here's what I wrote down. That the passage reveals, number one, God's scriptures are consistently accurate. That what God says happened, it happened. Those who want to find fault, it doesn't take us long. It's taken us 20 minutes to be able to say all those major criticisms are explainable. There is no contradiction. There is no problem with it. And yet they're going to run with it. We know there's no mistakes historically. It might not be the way we would talk today or the way we would have done it and recorded it, but there's no, there's no mistake. And what God predicted at one text to happen, and when the other text says this is how it was fulfilled, there is total agreement. That God's word, what he predicts, it always comes to pass. And so I look at it and go, okay, that's really true when it especially comes to Christ and when it comes to his birth story. Now, you're more than welcome. I'll give you a copy of these different prophecies and fulfillments if you want, even afterwards. But look at the ones that just deal with the birth of Jesus Christ that are totally fulfilled in all these different texts. We have the idea, we talked about he's being a descendant that was predicted to be not only Abraham's descendant, but also Isaac, since Abraham had other, had other boys. The descendant of Jacob, the descendant of Judah, because we know Jacob had more than one son, and so it was defined to be Judah's lineage, to be of the family line of Jesse within the tribe of Judah, to be then the son of David, of the house of David, and it's fulfilled. To be born in Bethlehem, we already pointed out that passage, kings come and present him 
for kings from outside the region, come and present him with gifts. We know that that is fulfilled. We know that they, it was predicted that the children would be attacked at this very time that Messiah arrives. We know it's Herod. And we know the fulfillment of that. And so all these little specific details that were predicted, they are completely fulfilled to the jotting of the, of the, uh, the I and the crossing of the T, that Yoda tittle, the idea that we read in Matthew that God's word is consistently accurate. If it's accurate in these details, let me remind you it is accurate about other details. The word of God is accurate when it comes to creation. The word of God is accurate when it comes to all the details about the flood. The word of God is completely accurate when it talks about how mankind fell, that it was Adam that introduced sin into the human race, and we pick up on that. Well, it is true about the miracles. I know that historians who criticize the Bible, they will come up with some exaggeration for the Red Sea. That the Red Sea, it was where they crossed at a very shallow point of the water. And so that's why they were able to, because the tide went out. And then the surprising part, part of that whole story is, in that shallow port of, uh, that shallow area of where the water was that they could cross and just basically walk through and get their feet wet, how does the Egyptian army get killed by that? And they all drown. Okay? There's some who would say, well, the miracle of the feeding of the thousands is simply that Jesus taught a lesson on sharing, and they all just shared their lunch. And they explain away the miracles. So we look and say, the Bible is accurate. There were miracles. God was doing supernatural dealings. The life of Christ, it is accurate, totally accurate. When we talk about, here's one that's being attacked more and more. That hell is just figurative speech. No, it isn't. Hell is a place of damnation and fire where the worm dieth not. Where there is what kind of response from people? They're in torments in this flame. There is gnashing of the teeth. There is the wailing. It is historic, it is biblically accurate when it describes hell as a place that you cannot escape from. Their friends and family will end up there if we don't get the good news to them and they have a choice. When we talk about heaven and how it's beautiful and it's wonderful and there's the reunion, we get to see Christ and there's streets of gold, it's factual. It is actual history future to us. We know that every promise is absolute. We know that all the prophecies that are still yet to be fulfilled, they will be fulfilled. And come the first of the year, we'll start a whole series on some of those end time prophecies. And talk about them more in depth on what's going to happen, what's being predicted. And so that idea that God's word is consistently accurate for you and me who are believers. To know that we're standing upon a solid foundation we need that right at this moment. We need to know that what God has promised, it is going to happen. We need to know that God is, is at our future, is in his hands, and it will happen. There will be a rapture. There will be a, a, a rewarding. There will be the time that our bodies are resurrected, and we will be renewed, rejuvenated in that sense. These are so, so reassuring and challenging. Let me give you a second thought that stands out from this story. That God's supervision is focused universally. I think we need that right now. I think our church needs that. I think our town needs this thought. The idea that God is sovereignly in charge. That God doesn't make mistakes. What I mean by this idea is God organized major and little events to work together. 
God moved an entire empire, an entire Roman system, an ungodly government that the man in charge, Augustus, was considered to be the God, the savior of the world. But God, and the God we serve, was manipulating him, was manipulating situations, so that when he made the decree, how many months or years it was before it actually carried out, it all fell into line that all of a sudden the implementation of this, from Augustus down to Herod, it took place that at the very time that Mary is reaching her due date, they have to be in Bethlehem. Our God is sovereignly in control of all the little details. Not just the big details, like God is in charge keeping creation in control, but he doesn't know about what I need for a vehicle. He doesn't know what I need for my bank account. No, no, no. Our God is sovereignly in control of everything he wants to control, and he is so focused that he is caring about you and your family in the little details, even if it means moving governments. Even if it means moving localities, God is absolutely in control of the events of government. And when it comes to us and our government and elections, our God is still in control. God, God is not caught off guard by the election. God knew what is happening or what's going to happen or how it concludes. God knows who's going to be sworn in on inauguration day. And God is making no mistakes. For God to allow it to happen the way it is going to happen isn't that we should just give up and not care. We should pray. We should do our part. But no matter who gets sworn in as president, God is still on the throne. And God is moving. And God is working. And God is designing this in such a way that it will fulfill his plans. Even if it's not the person that I want to be our president, our God is still in control. And we need to trust in the Lord as being in charge and working out what is best for bringing about his ultimate plan. And so I look at this and say, God even controls personal individual lives. If you watch our Facebook thing that, that goes out weekly, it was my turn this week to put it together. And I told the story about what happened in my own family here just two weeks ago. That God sovereignly directed details to work out a situation that none of us could have coordinated. Several months ago, we were very concerned about my father and him eating. Now that my mom died, my dad isn't taking care of himself, still living in his own home, for which we're very grateful for. But my dad has a disease where it's not Parkinson's. And it's a disease that in his family, the men typically get it. And it's a shaking type of thing that, that is uncontrolled by medicines or whatever. And it can affect writing, and it's even happening in the next generation that within my own uh, siblings, it's starting to show up. And it's, it's something that my dad had to take care of his own meals, but he would be shaking so much it's hard for him to feed himself at times. It's hard for him to even get things into the microwave or into the oven or whatever. And so several of us thought one of the things we can do is we can have foods being provided. We will provide that service. We'll make arrangements. We'll get it there to the house. And my dad is, he's a typical individual. He's fussy about what he gets to eat. And we don't fault him for that at all. But there were certain services he didn't care for. So we found one 
that they would send the frozen prepared food. You could get in 14 day quantities. You could order, get a menu. We could pick out and he would have a choice and a selection and food would come for 14 days. Every 14, all it would have to happen is one of my siblings who's living nearby could go down there, put it in the freezer. Dad could just take it out, put it in the microwave and then it defrosts, it'll heat up and he'll have a good nutritious meal at least once a day with leftovers. And so we were all excited about that. This is going to take care of This is going to help him out to be where he wants to be, but also giving the assurance that things are taken care of. And then after a period of time, he was having difficulty just getting things in and out of the microwave because of the shaking. And so that frustrated him. And he's of the mindset that if something is going wrong, instead of trying to figure out a way of recorrecting it, his normal reaction is just forget about it. We're just going to stop it, okay? And I'm so glad I don't have that quality, okay? <laughs> Deb, I was just joking about that, okay? okay. So uh, what happened is he said, just stop the meals. I'll be okay. Just stop the meals. It's just not working. So we stopped the meals. Well, in the meantime, the one sister-in-law who, who we were all working through and she did the actual ordering of it, she decided that since she retired not too long ago, she and my brother, they would like to do those meals. They looked good. They had experienced them at my dad's house and when they had visited from, the, from, from Arizona to Minnesota. They thought, you know, those were good. Why don't we order them for ourselves? We're going to order two weeks of meals. We thought that they were great. So she went online here a couple of weeks ago and she made the order. And somehow there was a mix-up. The mix-up was that they didn't put her address in. In Phoenix, they left the address to Owatonna, Minnesota on that order form. And so when she got notification that said, your delivery is outside your front door. She's thinking, we're in Phoenix, we got to get it indoor ASAP. She went to the door, and it's like, it's not there. So she contacted the company. They said, no, tracking says it was delivered. Where was it delivered to? Owatonna, Minnesota. Oh, wait a minute, that's the wrong place. We're in Phoenix. That's going to the place where my dad is, to his house, and he wasn't interested in those meals. So she picks up the phone. She's going to call my dad and talk with him. But when she calls him in Oatana, she gets my younger brother, who just happens to be there at that time of the day. He picks up and he says, hey, by the way, I'm so glad you called. I was going to call you and tell you, dad is so excited. He opened his door and there was this box. He recognized the box and he says, oh, I was hoping they would get some more of that. I loved that food, and now I know I'm going to have some good food for the next two weeks. Okay, Dad, you said you didn't want it, but you know, your freezer is empty, and it was a design by God to meet a need that my dad had at that very moment. How did that work? You might say it's coincidental. I think it's sovereign. I think it's how God works many times that we overlook. How God does the God things. How God moves details that you and I, we couldn't control. We couldn't plan. We couldn't even make the mistake if we wanted to. It was out of our hands. I told you about that story, and some of you may not have heard. When my daughter was in China, there was a death in one of the, one of the American families. And their daughter, they had wanted to go to this teen retreat. And they said, fine. And my daughter said, well, listen... I will accompany her after the retreat all the way to, um, 
Hong Kong, I think it was. I will accompany her to Hong Kong and we'll get her there But because I already have tickets to go to Hong Kong to meet Deb and I were coming at that moment. So, you know, I, I got my train tickets from the retreat several weeks ago and I will work it out that we'll get on the same train probably once we get on the train, won't see each other for those 12 hours of the trip because it's Chinese holiday. It'll be overloaded. And so the day that this all occurred, they went down to the train station when that girl's brother was injured and in life support there in Hong Kong. They went to the, the, the uh, train station and said, we need one more ticket. And they said, oh, this is holiday, but we have just one ticket left. And, okay, that's great. We'll take that one ticket. And when the woman who was doing the purchasing in Chinese came to my daughter, who was standing her with that charge of that teenage girl that she was going to keep track, she says, there was one ticket. One ticket on this multiple car train. Just one ticket left. Here it is. It's on train number, you know, car number, whatever it be, section, whatever it be, seat number, whatever it be. And my daughter said, What? Say that again. My daughter's looking at her ticket. It's the seat right next to my daughter. How could that have been arranged when it was months apart in ordering it? We serve a sovereign God. He works out details. He works out things because all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Our God is in sovereign charge. And our God has a sense of humor. There's this, this, just to throw this out for you. There was a comet when Caesar Augustus was, was inaugurated as the new emperor. There was a comet in the sky for seven days seen at night. So they took it as a heavenly sign that this is God's son coming to the throne. That was back in you know, several decades earlier. And as a result, they said that he was a god. They called him the savior of the world. Isn't it interesting that God took that very same type of thing and said, Hey, I'll show you a real sign in the sky. For several months, I'll show you, and it will be the Savior. And on top of it, I'm going to manipulate this guy who you think is the Savior of the world. Our God is amazing. Our God is absolutely awesome. And so we look at this story, and we say, yeah, yeah, it's strange. It's odd. And people look, and they criticize, and they say, how could anybody end up in a manger like this? How could anybody have their child born this way amongst cattle. And you and I look at it and say, because the third truth, God's son had incomparable, incomparable love for, for us. That's the motivation behind, the, behind this entire text. If you look at it, Jesus leaving heaven, pure place, angels worshiping him, everybody adoring him. And he comes to a birthplace that you and I, we would say it's not so good. It's not a good birthplace. It's not a place we'd want to be. What it is, is he's coming in this situation. They come to the city of Bethlehem, and we have developed a whole theology and all kinds of story because of one phrase. There was no room for him in the inn. And we have different ideas what that means. The word literally is kaluma. There's no room in the kaluma. And we look at it and we say, okay, that makes sense. There's a lot of people traveling towards Bethlehem because this is a tax that the Jewish officials are saying. Everybody goes back, all those of that tribe have to head back to the headquarters of Bethlehem, and they do that. But you and I read this. There was no room for them in Howard Johnson's. There was no room for them in Motel 6. They didn't leave the light on. You know, there was no room for them in 
the Kalahari, you know, whatever you want to pick. And it's like, that is not the way it worked. It didn't go that route. Um, if we go back and we understand a little bit of history and background, what they had is they had structures for travelers. This was very typical in the ancient Near East. They had these caravaseri that they were different. They were inns. They were kalumas that people could travel who were going a distance. And they would come to this area that had typically a U-shaped with some fencing roundabout that the buildings would have this U-shaped building that there would be there would be an entire um, building that could have a lower floor or a, a second floor. It would Sometimes they were just one level raised up like where I'm at compared to you. And this would be called the Kaluma. Or it could be an entire floor above me and that would be the Kaluma and first floor would be where the animals were. If it was the Kaluma where it's like this, this is where the people would... Please don't take offense to this. This is where the people would stay and where you're at is where the animals would be. And, they, and this area raised would go all the way around this room with the opening over there. And we would stay in here and we would be in the upper room area and our animals, all of our animals that we're traveling with, all of those animals would be in the courtyard and we're sleeping and these Kalumas would not necessarily have private dwelling places with doors on them. They were just open. And so you would get your little section, and you guys would get your little section. You'd, privacy was, out of the, was not there. And what would happen is the owner of this would charge you to be able to sleep. You're on your own when it comes to changing mattresses and bedding and feeding the animals. You would just pay for the opportunity to be inside someplace that they could close the gate and got protection. That is one form of kaluma. Could it be that that's exactly what they're talking about here in the text? That they came in and Mary and Joseph end up in the middle here with people and in the middle of the stench of the animals. Or we know historically from, from digs that, that when there was these regions, if they had larger groups of animals, on the outside could be an outbuilding or a cave. And they would put more animals there. And there's that possibility that that would be the case, that Mary and Joseph, either way, they're going to end up here with this idea that they could be in a center court. They could be in the stench and the stink and the urine and the, the uh, extra, okay, of all the animal stuff or in a cave that might be this way. There's the Kaluma when we talk about the individual homes that we know how they did the homes in Bethlehem and those Jewish areas that they would have homes that had different raised elevations. The lower elevations is where they would put few of the animals, the ones that they might need for the next day, the donkey or whatever, or the cow that they need the milk for that day or the some of the sheep. But if they had herds, the herds would be in an outbuilding or in a cave nearby where they could put far more animals. And the families would live on the second level or the top level was often reserved for special people. That top level would be for the idea of the upper room where Jesus had his feast. You could rent out the top floor. And so are they saying that, hey, this is what we're talking about. They came to a relative's house. And the relatives had already so many relatives visiting because we're family, we're all coming back, that they had no room in the Kaluma 
There is no innkeeper mentioned. Please just put that in mind. All it says, there's no room in the end. Could it be that they approached relatives and the relatives said, hey, listen, I'm sorry, you got here later than everybody else because you took longer time, which we understand why, and there's no room for you in the upper room. The only room we have is downstairs where everybody's animals are or in the outbuilding or the cave where we have some of our own flocks. There could be that possibility because the other relatives were there first. What could be the other possibility that if they showed up at a relative's home? We don't want you. Because your reputation, an illegitimate pregnancy. So they end up, either way, they end up in quarters that explain to us they aren't the human quarters. They're the animal quarters. That we know. Because she brings forth her child and lays him in a manger the feeding trough that could be cut out of a piece of wood that's just like a bowl. And so we, we know that what happens here, they end up in the, air, in the animals area, a place that you and I wouldn't want to spend a night. We're so fussy that if the motel isn't right, we don't want to spend the night. We definitely wouldn't want our kids to sleep here. We definitely wouldn't want to give birth in this spot. None of you, none of you ladies would, none of you men would put your wives in that spot. And we look and we say, well, how does this happen? Why does this happen? It happens because of God's incomparable love. God allowed his child to be put in that spot. Why? Because he loved you. He loved me. And not only does he allow himself to be experiencing this filth, this stench, the majority of you walked in this evening were joking about how it stinks out here because of fertilizer or whatever. How would you like to be in a room, in a cave, and you're bringing forth your firstborn? Why would God allow his son looking down and saying, I'm going to give my son, this is the way he's going to arrive? He loved you. He loved me. And not only that, there's a phrase that I never fully, fully comprehended until I did some real research this time, more in depth, how Jesus allowed himself to be hum humbled. What, what was the signal? What was the sign given to the shepherds? You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. And so I was able to find some other, re some other details that typically more in Galilee than in southern Judea, that typically they would take swaddling clothes and there was this idea that up in Galilee that when a child's born, the child's been we understand that, all curled up. Let's straighten the limbs. You would straighten the limbs and you would take a piece of cloth and wrap them tight like this, a piece of cloth that could be up to six to ten feet in length. That the child be wrapped up with this and then some salt would be spread in between and the child was held this way for the first few days. It's just so that the child's limbs would grow straight. It was their thought for some reason. He's God. He's being held by a piece of cloth, unable to move. You're told to stay home and we go nuts. Why did he allow himself to be treated this way? He loved you. He loved me. He, he made these sacrifices for you and me. He humbled himself. Why? Because his love is absolutely incomparable. Nobody's ever loved us this way. Nobody ever loved to the point that they died for us this way. We love our kids, and we would give for them, but this is one who 
His love is beyond what we know. It is absolutely amazing. The passage reveals this final truth. It reveals this fact that God's son is frequently, readily overlooked. We know that this story, and we'll look at it more next Sunday, God comes in the flesh, he's Emmanuel, it's Jesus. Here he is, and the shepherds do come. We'll see next Sunday. They come, and it says in the text that after the shepherds see them, please, please go to verse 16. They come with haste, they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying, and when they had seen it, Look at the rest of the verse. They made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all that heard it. What's your Bible read? They're amazed. They're, they're, they're puzzled. They're amazed. They're thinking this through at the things which were told them. But we, know, we never hear anything more. We don't hear about crowds coming. How is it that we are so often amazed by God, but we don't get engaged with Christ intimately? That we don't get involved with really in-depth time with Christ? Probably the same reason those people didn't. We're too busy. We got a tax problem going. We got to get home. We've got crops to take care of, or we got farm equipment to repair, depending upon the season of the year. Or maybe they'd say, We already have religion. Or maybe they'd say, I'm satisfied with where I am spiritually, just like sometimes we think I'm good enough. Everything is okay. Or we'll do it later. We'll, we'll wait for a more convenient time to really fast and pray or meditate or take time to get close to Christ. Or really, God loves me so much, I feel so unworthy. I don't know if I should get even closer to him. He's so amazing. Or maybe we say this, if I get closer to him, he's going to challenge me to change, to surrender, and I don't want to surrender something that I'm holding on to. Or maybe, maybe we think this, if I get really close to Christ, he's going to ask me to do something that I don't want to do. My life is comfortable right now. Whatever the reason, those people aren't so much different than us. They appreciate Things are amazing and miracles and all these things. They like to hear about angels and they like to hear about the wow factor. But to take the time to personally get close to Christ, it's a challenge. It's a struggle. It's something they needed to do. Something we need to do. This passage isn't about salvation. This passage is to believers. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice, I will come in and I will have fellowship with you. Extended. And he knocks at your heart's door and says, This Christmas, please take the time to let me really sup with you. Life has slowed down because of COVID. Let's take opportunities. Let's take the opportunity to really get close to Christ. To really spend time with him. To really ponder and treasure the Christ child of Christmas season. Not just think about it, but do what Mary did. She pondered these things. She meditated. That meditation might prove to be extremely beneficial to us in the future. If we slow down, take in what God has done, it might spare us from a lot of heartache. So let's ponder. Let's treasure the Christmas story.